0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. Be sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every Wednesday. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. This week, we look at big tech and the wild swings in their stock prices over the past week as they reported quarterly earnings. We're going
1: to look at why the price moves have been so extreme and what the future holds for these modern industrial giants. And then later in the show, I ask the dumb question of the week. Why do companies even care about their stock price? And how does the company benefit from the price going up? So before we get into it, I thought we'd just reflect on the last couple of weeks. We put a couple of polls up on YouTube and over 2,000 of you voted. So that's incredible and a pretty good sample size, I would say. Um, the first poll was asking, are we in a stock market bubble? And 65% of you said yes. And then the second poll was looking at which factor do you think will outperform over the next 12 months? And 46% said value, which was the top performer. And the next was quality at 27% and the others all around 10%. Uh, any issues with that, Roman? Seems to Makes sense. People kind of think, yeah, we're in a bit of a bubble and therefore I'm going to go for value.
0: And value's underperformed for so long, so maybe this is its time to finally appear in the sunshine blinking.
1: So turning to the topic at hand, last week we saw a remarkable earnings season for big tech companies. Meta, which is the parent company for Facebook, suffered the largest ever one-day loss in market value for a US company. And then, the very next day, Amazon notched the largest ever one-day gain in history. Robin, what on earth is going on?
0: Well, it comes down to liquidity. So... You're probably thinking, what is liquidity? It's a very odd term. Well, if you trade, you click on buy for a stock, say, all of this plumbing invisibly goes on behind the scenes to place your trade. And usually you'll see the prices say a hundred. You place your trade and you trade at something which is a little bit different to that. Right. When there's low liquidity in the market, the market makers won't be able to trade with you close to that price you saw or don't want to, more importantly, so you may actually end up trading at a slightly different price. And for institutional investors that place large trades, they actually move the market much more than you or I, Michael. I'm sure that you wouldn't move markets usually, would you?
1: Not with my pennies,
0: no. No, okay. So Same here. I mean, I I don't trade in big sizes ever. So I think for institutional investors, this is terrifying because if they can't trade large sizes without moving the market, then they have to worry about how they actually execute these trades. And if, if they are going to try and sell, for example, they may not be able to execute at a reasonable price and they have to actually space out the trade over a number of days.
1: So everyone was running for the exit at the same time and the market makers just didn't want to give a good price. Is that what you're saying?
0: Because they pull back from the market. If they trade close to that mid-market price, they're taking the risk that they'll end up holding stock as it's tanking. Right. So that's not what they want. So they step back and lower the price at which they're willing to buy your sell order. And that's because they're nervous. If people are worried about increasing interest rates they're worried about earnings being weak, then they won't take that risk. And market makers are key to the system. They really provide the plumbing, which makes equity markets work.
1: So what I understand market makers to be is that by legislation, they have to trade with you, but they can set whatever price they want.
0: So they don't have a choice when to trade, but they choose the price at which they trade. Whereas you choose when you want to trade, but you can't choose the price damn (laughs) (laughs) i used to i used to laugh when i was on the investment banking side there was a chap who whenever people said i want to buy this stock at this price he'd say so do i mate so do i (laughs) did he last long (laughs) no unfortunately he soon disappeared yeah So if you think about
1: it in the context of Meta, which fell, I think, $230 billion in a day, which is unheard of for a large cap, as we said, the biggest fall in history. Did the low liquidity mean that it sold off kind of more than it should have in normal market conditions?
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. But if you look at large caps, generally, because of the high liquidity, what you'll see is if there's intensive selling, their price will gradually creep downwards. What you don't see is a gap downwards. And that's what we saw with Facebook that day.
1: I saw the FT describe it as an air pocket in the market.
0: Air pocket's a good description. You're kind of sailing along. Usually you descend gradually, but what we saw is a huge gap upwards or a gap downwards. So that's typical of what you'd see when liquidity is just not there. It wasn't just Facebook. We also had PayPal fall by 24% over the space of one day. And we had Amazon rise by 13.5%. This is a company with a market cap of 1.6 trillion. So big moves are not unusual, but usually for small caps where there isn't much liquidity. For a large cap where there's huge liquidity, usually this is simply unheard of.
1: So if I'm an investor, which I sometimes pretend to be, and I'm looking at this (laughs) and I'm thinking, oh, maybe Meta went down more than it should have because of low liquidity. If I go in now and then liquidity returns, will it not rise kind of by default?
0: Possible, but I think many of these air pockets simply put us where we would have got just more quickly.
1: Right, okay, that makes sense. So let's take a look at the specifics of Meta and Facebook and why that company fell. So I think the main story come out of the earnings was that it was the first ever quarter on record where they lost daily active users. Only slightly, so their daily active users are around 2 billion and it dropped very, very slightly, like a percentage point. But that's potentially a turning point for the company, right, where it's no longer a growth story and it's plateaued.
0: And this is a problem with any huge mega cap tech company, which is there are only so many people that it can sell its stuff to. And once you've reached 2 billion users, well, where are you going to go from there? It's not going to be the case that everyone on the planet is going to log into a particular platform every day. So I think that was one of the problems. It's a miss on people actually logging into the site every day. And that does seem to have peaked. And if that's the case, and it's not young people who are doing this, it's generally older people, such as myself, who, who use yeah, I'm Facebook. all
1: on TikTok and stuff, right? I'm not. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So... Actually, I don't use Facebook much myself. But the point is that it actually beat on revenue. So the earnings weren't that bad. The expectation was that they'd earn $3.84 in earnings. They actually earned $3.67. So it wasn't an absolutely huge miss.
1: I think where it changed though is the guidance going forward. So I think they're looking at single digit growth they're forecasting for the first three months of 2022, whereas you know this time last year they did 48% growth. So that's a big step change.
0: So I actually tweeted about this. I said it was the most expensive sentence in history. And what they said is, we expect our year over year growth in the first quarter to be impacted by headwinds to both impression and price growth. So 22 words on the earnings call. The price of the company fell in the after hours market by 18.3%, so that's roughly $7 billion. Per word. So I think that's the most expensive sentence in history.
1: Good work, CFO.
0: <laughs> can you imagine how they must have felt? And of course people say that Zuckerberg wept in one of the meetings that they had the next day. And you can understand why.
1: No. He doesn't feel human emotions, Roman. <laughs>
0: <laughs> A very convincing emulation of emotions, certainly.
1: So some of those headwinds you mentioned, I think the big one is that Apple has changed the way privacy works on its iOS operating system. So now users have to opt in to sharing their data with apps such as Facebook. And I I think Meta said um, that's costing them around $10 billion in revenue for this coming year. Now that's, that's a material impact.
0: And also the pivot to the metaverse itself, I think is probably misguided. It just reminds me of these companies when they first heard of the internet in the 2000s, said, okay, we'll just buy it. You know, we'll just buy the internet. They just didn't understand that that's not something you can do. You can carve out a niche by providing tools in the ecosystem of systems which create the metaverse probably but to own the entire metaverse or a big part of it i think is just misguided it's kind of like when you play a game you know if you i play a lot of open world games and once i've played every aspect of the game i just get sick of it you know i just want to move on to something else so if there was a metaverse where you had to log into it every day to do your shopping to talk to your friends i'm not sure i'd want that you know if there was something new that came along that was slightly different and maybe a bit better then i just ditch it
1: yeah i think it's hard for a company to build what warren buffett might call a moat in something like the metaverse and i think it's hard in social media generally it seems to me that what we're seeing now with tiktok is that each generation wants its own social network because fundamentally you don't want to be on the same platform as your parents right
0: yeah you don't want to meet your parents on there for goodness sake
1: So going back to the metaverse, is it unusual for a company the size of Facebook to take such a flyer on an unproven concept where, you know, their division that's developing this is losing $10 billion a year?
0: I think they have to do something radical, because if if young people aren't using the platform and they're seeing a drop in users, the question is who's going to be the incremental user of Facebook in the future? There aren't going to be that many more humans. You know, the population's actually going in the wrong direction in terms of Facebook's growth. So... They've got to do something to get young people on there. And video is what they're going to try and focus on. But they're going to have to use their own version of TikTok which isn't, I suspect, as popular with people as TikTok.
1: No, and I've always wondered, like, surely Facebook's user base, like you say, it's older. They're not the kind of people who are likely to embrace the metaverse, at least not in the early adopter stage. You th- you'd think someone like TikTok or Snapchat might be better place to do the early running.
0: And it's so odd that they buy games, you know, like battle games, where, you know, I could just imagine going around Sainsbury's with an Uzi. I mean, it's just not the kind of... <laughs> 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 I'm not sure, <laughs> sure they sit very well together.
1: I mean I guess fundamentally I'm not completely convinced the metaverse is going to be this game changer for the world and replace the internet in some ways but then maybe we'll look back on that comment and think oh it's like the person at IBM who supposedly said the world's only going to need five computers. Didn't really say it but everyone thinks he did.
0: Yeah I think I think that we will never be able to actually say what it is before it actually takes off and evolves but generally it's not one company that does it. Usually it's some kind of emergent process which creates the thing. I don't think anyone could have seen how the internet looks today and had some kind of reasonable description of it, say, 40 years ago, because it has evolved based on people's tastes and also what technologies were possible. You know, I think many of the ideas that have actually come to dominate the internet have not been the ones that anyone would have predicted. So similarly, I think it's silly actually trying to predict these web trends and trying to predict what the metaverse would look like.
1: I mean, so far, when I've seen clips of it, it just looks like a lot of soulless avatars just standing around listening to sort of (laughs) teen pop music.
0: And the fact is, you know, a lot of the broadband's quite glitchy, certainly in the UK and in many other countries around the world. So you'd have this kind of not very immersive experience. You'd have to wear those funny goggles and look like an idiot. So I think those are the problems. You know, I I just don't think wearing goggles is very comfortable or something that you'd be willing to do for long periods of time.
1: I mean, it's interesting that a lot of the big tech companies seem to be going in this direction. So Microsoft with HoloLens, obviously Meta, I think Apple Apple is rumoured to be launching a headset sometime in the next year or two. So it's clearly on all their minds.
0: But the actual interface to make it immersive, I think that's going to be quite difficult to create. I mean, the scary one is from Elon Musk, who's creating Neuralink, where it would actually interface with your brain. So you wouldn't have to wear goggles. It would literally be plumbed into your cortex. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd like Elon Musk crawling around inside my prefrontal cortex.
1: Surely that's a long way off being sort of rolled out for mass adoption.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's the that's the goal, presumably. It's not for medical applications it would be for better human computer interfaces
1: i mean we're on the verge of sort of building a dystopia i mean which of the big companies dystopia would you like to live in most do you think
0: mcdonald's i think <laughs> the ronald mcdonald metaverse <laughs> i would love it it would be my happy place <laughs> so in terms of meta
1: their future prospects are really tied to the metaverse then i mean they've got other headwinds The competition from TikTok is the obvious one they mentioned. And also a public perception problem. I think no one loves Facebook, right? In the way that, you know, Apple has a lot of people that love it. Some people that hate it, but a lot of fanboys. Facebook doesn't have that, does it?
0: No, and I think the whole business model of selling customer data or marketing based on data comes with its own pushback. There's a kind of natural resistance to that from large groups of people. And you don't have to be particularly... Privacy-minded to object to it, and it was spooky. Some of the advertisements that you'd see, you'd go from one platform to another, and then based on what you looked at on the other platform, it would start suggesting things, and that was kind of spooky. And I, I don't think people like that.
1: No, I mean it's kind of a bit of a cliche now, isn't it, to say you are not Facebook's customer; the advertiser is the customer. You are the product.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think people just don't like it, and I think they're going to have to change that perception. And there has to be some kind of privacy control that. many countries are probably going to impose on Facebook and that's going to be a headwind for many of these companies which try to have a global footprint.
1: I think regulators are now really scrutinizing big tech aren't they both in America, Europe um, and the rest of the world Um, and it comes from several angles so we've got this sort of antitrust angle where you could argue that many of these platforms are effective monopolies.
0: And I think the problem is that they're such big companies they've been so successful and they've grown so much you know because of the fact they could grow earnings globally based on products which are really good. You know, I mean, it's not because they're bad products. It's because they've created a kind of monopoly because they've produced good products. But I think the problem is that many indices are now heavily dependent on these companies because they've been so successful. mega Cap Tech, for example, at one point, it was about half of the NASDAQ in the US. That's less now because of the fall. And that's how these concentrations always end, which is that the companies which have really dominated start to crash and that's the unpleasant side effect of huge concentration.
1: I mean, I read some research from Goldman Sachs which said that the higher a concentration goes in an index the lower the likely future returns are.
0: Yeah, and I saw other notes which said that that's how they usually end, right? This is the way concentration usually ends. And if you look back 100 years, if you look at the composition of the UK market, the US market, can you guess what the really exciting new tech was in 1900, Michael?
1: The motor car.
0: Railways. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so railways were about half of the US index, more than half, and about half of the UK. And of course, they're hardly visible now on a market cap breakdown of modern indices. So these things change over time and concentration's not healthy.
1: I mean, one thing I wondered when you look at these huge companies, so just for a sense of scale, the big five, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Meta, collectively, they topped $1.4 trillion in revenue last year. That would rank 13th in GDP as a nation, just behind Brazil and ahead of Australia. You know, these are huge, huge companies. And inevitably, does that bring the problem that they kind of become conglomerates, spread over so many different industries that are not that directly connected. And with conglomerates comes the problem of efficiencies and lack of them.
0: And a lack of competition. I think that's the other problem. So for example, Amazon has destroyed a lot of merchants' abilities to be independent companies because it's simply steamrolled small suppliers, small niche suppliers, even though it says you can sell on their platform. So in a sense, it's enabling those companies, but only if you play by their rules and give them a cut. Of course.
1: I think if you look at the different big tech companies and how they've grown over the past couple of decades to me amazon is the most impressive story for a few reasons it didn't really have the first mover advantage that some of the others did it works on lower margins because you know it's in retail and distribution that's a hard business with lots of competition and it's had to solve really really hard logistical problems which you would say okay facebook hasn't it's not in the business of physical products and warehouses so they've just like fought their corner and grown against all the odds i would say
0: the web services business has just been incredible
1: well yeah that. That's where it's gone now.
0: And if you look at their, their share in that space, it's still hugely dominant. Microsoft is catching up, but it's still a long way behind Amazon. So it was just so clever of Bezos to say that any services we provide, you stick behind an interface and you make available to everybody.
1: I think it's the case that when you look back, their success kind of feels inevitable, right? You think Amazon, it was always going to be huge, but it really wasn't. If you look at the origins, it was the online bookstore. There's no reason that should have been the business that dominated the world more than the online pet shop, right? was just like it did so well.
0: But then I remember when it started to kind of transition and I thought, yeah, that makes sense. You know, if I get my books from Amazon, they've got all of the infrastructure for delivery. Why not give me, you know, my shopping or my... I don't know what else you buy from Amazon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Everything. That's the thing, right? You buy everything from Amazon.
0: I think you're right. I think Amazon's one of the best stories. But you know, if you look at the other huge ones, things like Apple, whoever would have thought that such a high-end product, where to be a cool kid, you've got to own one of these phones, who would have thought that it would ever be cool to own a phone? It would never even enter into our minds when I was a kid.
1: Yeah, but it's not really a phone, is it now? It's everything. It's that sort of everything box. You carry around with you. <laughs> you know, think about it. Think what it's replaced. So, people say tech is deflationary, which I agree with. I mean, think about it. Your phone has replaced your MP3 player, your camera, your video recorder, your alarm clock, your notepad, your calendar, torch, diary, dictaphone. That's a lot of gadgetry we don't need to buy anymore.
0: Radio, record player.
1: <laughs> record player. <laughs>
0: Is that what they call it when you listen to the hit parade?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think you, I think you're right. Like
1: GPS, like everything, right?
0: Yeah, every aspect of your life is effectively run by the mobile phone.
1: Looking at Apple, it makes me wonder, like how much bigger can these companies realistically get. So I looked at it on Bloomberg and Apple's market cap is 40 percent higher than the entire energy sector in the US.
0: And that seems crazy. And if you look at Tesla, it's so much bigger than all the other car manufacturers, many of them put together. And when it falls, you measure its fall in terms of Volkswagen market caps. It fell by one Volkswagen today.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the thing with the Facebook fall, right? I think it fell $232 billion in a day.
0: It fell by one Netflix.
1: Yeah, so that, in sort of order of magnitude, that's like a Netflix going bust from the Nasdaq, right? It's huge.
0: And many big fund managers, like Smith had huge allocations to PayPal and Facebook. So I think that was a big shock for them. Certainly it took a big dent out of their fund.
1: Yeah, I think we'll see a lot of active managers have been on the wrong side of some of these trends.
0: Because tech was trending upwards. So if you weren't heavily tilted towards US tech and these mega caps, you'd underperform. So many of them actually caved in and tilted to become more Nasdaq-y, just in time for the thing to turn around. So they must be feeling pretty bad right now, I'm suspecting.
1: Yeah. And is this just another defense of why probably for most people you just want the broadest index possible?
0: Yeah. And it's interesting. This is another example where people who do have diversified exposure could just look at the Facebook tumble and not really be affected by it. The broad indices didn't fall much that day. But if you do have a concentrated portfolio like that of Smith or even a Nasdaq, it certainly took a big chunk out.
1: And going back to the future of big tech, so we touched on regulation and antitrust. I think that is probably the biggest area they're going to have to fight in. So I was reading yesterday that Facebook, I mean, it's probably just a sort of bluff, but they were saying, oh, we might have to pull out of Europe if... The EU regulates on, you know, restricting our data transfers to the US.
0: But would many people weep at the exit of Facebook? Yeah, yeah,
1: Facebook's pulling out. Oh no! Anyway,
0: <laughs> I think if, if if Apple pulled out, that would be much worse. Well, because you know people love their iPhones, whereas very few people love Facebook. But that's the thing;
1: these companies, right, are too big. Well, maybe too big to fail, but just too big to sort of rely on. They're public utilities now. If Apple just disappeared tomorrow, what would we do? I wouldn't be able to communicate with anyone. I'm all in on
0: Apple's ecosystem. Oh, no, I'd be fine because I'm on Android.
1: Oh, really? I thought you were on Ubuntu or some nonsense.
0: Yeah, of course. I use Linux. I use open source software as much as I can. But that's why I like Android, because it's built on open source tech. <laughs> so Apple can go as far as I care. But you wouldn't be able to talk to me. OK, that would be bad. But in terms of love, you know, I think, you know, Microsoft is clearly part of every office ecosystem, almost. So they've been very successful in selling, you know, making Office indispensable. Again, I don't use that. I try deliberately not to use their ecosystem system but such a rebel well yes i think i just dislike the fact that it is a kind of monoculture which i don't like i like a bit of diversity you know if you look at living systems the ones which are most robust are the ones where there's most diversity if there is too much concentration in one species or one particular metabolic system then that's always at risk if something goes wrong So that's why I think it's healthier to have a more broad ecosystem. And that's why I think the metaverse will probably be quite diverse. It'll just naturally evolve into something which is a very open architecture, I think. I think many tech companies are now seeing that open architecture is the way to go.
1: And I think regulators are kind of looking at that as well. So the other issue is where the big platforms are giving preference to their own services. So the EU's gone after Google for preferring its maps and things and shopping results in its search. And now they're looking at Apple and how it operates the app store. So these services businesses, where they're kind of both the platform and the primary product on it, I think that's going to be tough for them to maintain.
0: Yeah, for the same reason, I think, that many people dislike mainstream media, which is that they're the gatekeepers of information. And people resent that. They want to access any information they want, even if it's blatantly false so I think, I think that the same is true of apps. You know, you want to have a system where you can get the apps that you want rather than the ones curated to generate the most profit for a big company.
1: And in terms of startup companies are trying to compete with Apple on music services, say, Apple is basically charging rent for its platform, and competition authorities don't generally like that kind of thing. It's anti-competitive. I mean, I guess that also goes around to the metaverse, right? The problem Facebook probably has is it doesn't directly own the relationship with its users on mobile at least And so if it if it thinks it can build the metaverse and be the platform there maybe it can be the one charging rent
0: It certainly wants to be but whether i'd want to put on my goggles and be in facebook every day or at least their version of the universe that's not where i'd like to be i don't think
1: and the other thing with all these big tech companies is it seems up until now, they've been relatively sort of siloed and each has had their part of the market. So Facebook's dominated social media, Google's dominated search, and Apple's dominated the sort of premium products. And they've, so they've each had their area where they've specialised. And now perhaps they're moving their tanks onto each other's lawns, like we hinted at earlier. They're looking all looking at metaverse slash VR. They're all really looking at self-driving cars, or at least Apple, Alphabet and Amazon are. Are they all just squaring? Up for a big battle
0: now? Yeah, and I don't think that's going to work either because you've got a lot of new entrants, many of them from China, where they are starting to compete with the technologies from the West. I think what we might see is a kind of trading block breakdown where China dominates the ecosystem to the East and the US dominates the ecosystem to the West. I think China's rapidly evolving its own versions of many of the things that we've got. For example, for search, they've got their own version. For electric cars, they've got many of their own manufacturers, which are comparable with Tesla. So I think that's probably the way we're headed. And it's probably going to be legislation which stops each of us using any platform we like. We'll probably have to side with one or the other due to...
1: National security
0: fears. Yeah, national security fears, yeah. Yeah.
1: And do you think that's the sort of line the regulators are treading? So the more they regulate Meta and Facebook, the more it pushes people to TikTok, which is a Chinese company.
0: Yeah, I think it'll be very difficult to stop people doing that. You know, Trump tried to stop people using TikTok in the US and failed. And it's now very popular. But ultimately, the regulators can stop people using these systems. So maybe that's the way we're headed, a kind of divergence and a kind of split into trading blocks. Remember, if you do want to learn more about investing and dig into any of these topics in more detail, you can do that as part of the PensionCraft community. Just go to PensionCraft.com to find out more. Did you see someone reply to the, um, the tweet on Many Happy Returns about the MSCI momentum indices? No. So they rebalance at the end of the any month when market volatility spikes. Page 10 of their methodology. And they use risk-adjusted momentum, which basically makes them sharp ratio factor funds, which I said it would be good if we had those.
1: Seems like we're cultivating a very smart audience, which is worrying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're going to be held to account now.
1: I know. At least I'm the dumb one.
0: Yeah, well, (laughs) so am I, unfortunately.
1: So all that talk of company stock prices falling and rising kind of brings to mind the dumb question of the week, which is why do companies even care about their stock price? I kind of understand that as a stockholder, I obviously want the price to go up. That increases my value. And to the extent that the senior executives and staff are shareholders in the company, they'll want that too. But why does the company care?
0: Well, the fact is it doesn't really day to day unless it has to raise more capital. If you think about what happens when a company issues shares, it's giving away control of the company, because remember, the shares come with a vote. And the question is, how many votes do they have to give away for a certain amount of capital through the door? So typically, they think of this as a cost of capital. But if the share price is higher, then they can issue relatively fewer shares and dilute their existing shareholders less and generate a lot of capital, which they can then use to grow the business.
1: But as I understand it, new share issues for public listed companies are relatively rare. And when I'm buying a stock of a company, I'm basically buying off another investor, aren't I? I'm not giving money to the company.
0: That's right. In the secondary market, as they call it, it really doesn't matter because the company doesn't directly benefit from that at all. So I think unless they're issuing new stock or perhaps there are other special situations where it does matter. So, for example, if they're a particularly low price stock relative to where they've been Recently, if they've been battered down by crisis, say, such as Peloton, then they're actually likely to be taken over.
1: Yes, they become a target, don't they?
0: Exactly and a cheap takeover target. So having a high share price makes that less likely if the management doesn't want to sell. So that's one reason. Another one might be that the equity price has a, an indirect effect on the bond market, the corporate bond market. So maybe that they're seen as a stronger company and so their actual cost of funding in the bond market is also lower.
1: All oh, right, so you're saying if a stock price falls calamitously then they might have to pay a higher interest rate effectively on their debt.
0: Exactly. Down the line. If they issue more corporate bonds. And that's a much more likely scenario. So for example, in the US, companies typically fund themselves via the corporate bond market. In Europe, it's more via the bank market. So banks provide loans to companies more often. But for the US, this is really important. And it's something which happens all the time. They're continually rolling over their existing debt, issuing new debt. So their credit spread for the company, which is their priced risk, additional risk for the company, is really critical. So if they have a strong share price, maybe that credit spread will be smaller and they can fund themselves more cheaply. So that's another reason why they might want a higher share price.
1: And I suppose the other thing is if the share price rises significantly, then they can use that stock to take over other companies more cheaply, because often you make a bid, which is in large part giving stock in your own company, right?
0: Yeah, if you're giving away your stock in return for theirs, then clearly you'll get more favourable terms if your price is higher than theirs relatively. So at the margin, if you're doing a takeover, if you're trying to not be taken over, it might help. But I guess it also creates a kind of halo effect, because if you you see a company where the share price is rocketing upwards it represents the fact that there are good vibes around the company mm, it's
1: almost that momentum factor we talked about last week
0: exactly and, and, and it creates this kind of halo effect which people think oh this is great i'll buy their services as well so it may have an indirect effect on revenue too because people think it's a kind of up-and-coming company and those two things usually do go together if you've got rapidly growing sales and huge increases in popularity because they produce goods or services which are really popular, then these things would kind of go hand in hand.
1: I mean, I suppose that's especially true in the US, where I think over 50% of the population are shareholders. So they're probably more aware of which company is doing well than I would be here in the UK.
0: Yeah, that's right. In the in Europe, I think we're much less au fait with what's going on in the equity market, or at least we were until February 2020.
1: And we think um, companies are getting sort of too big for their boots sometimes, don't we, when they when their price gets too high, and we're like, oh, I'm not going to give my services to Amazon. I'm not going to buy from Amazon. <laughs>
0: That's right. We try and knock them down a peg.
1: Yeah. And I guess the other thing is with the importance of indexes and index funds these days, a higher stock price will potentially push you into an index and a fall will drop you out, which can be calamitous i would have thought for a company
0: certainly for the ones which are close to one of the relegation zones so if you're just on the cusp of being in the s&p 500 then yeah the share price will be really important because loads of forced buyers suddenly enter the market for your stocks if you get bumped up and if you get bumped down of course the opposite happens so there is that kind of indexing effect you're right
1: So it seems to me that though companies don't generally directly benefit from people buying their stock in the secondary market, there is a huge range of different effects, which means that the stock price is really important to them.
0: Yeah, so for many companies, I think it's a measure of success and it certainly reflects on the management, as you said in the intro. And and for many managers, the compensation they receive is very much dependent on share price performance.
1: Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It's been great to hear how many of you are enjoying the show and sharing your thoughts.
0: If you want to get involved in the community, go to the Pension Craft YouTube channel or follow us on Twitter. We'll see you again next Wednesday.
1: Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production. Co-hosted and executive produced by Ramin Nakisa and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.